OBGYN. Today, it is my honor to bring you a conversation with Dr. Deneo Cabelli. She is our new chair of the Department of OBGYN here at Washington University and professor of OBGYN. She is here in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology as a physician scientist. She has an ovarian cancer lab. She has been a wonderful leader and sponsor for many people along their career paths as OBGYN. I think as you listen to her conversation here, you will see that her passion for women's health shines through. And I know that in the past few months that she's been here, we've all felt this new enthusiasm and sort of renewed sense of invigoration about our jobs in women's health. I hope you'll hear that here in this conversation and please enjoy hearing a little more about Dr. Janeo Cabelli. Thank you. Good morning, Dr. Cabelli. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, I know it's been um, a whirlwind introduction to St. Louis since you started. Um, just uh, tell us a little bit about when you started, kind of how it's been so far, how you're settling into St. Louis. Okay, well I started June 1st, and so it's been a little over two months since I've been here. Finally moved into my house um, the 4th of July weekend. Okay. So it has been a whirlwind. It's been a lot. Um, taking on a new job, moving in the middle of a pandemic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's been a lot. So many things. There, there have been a lot of things that I've had to kind of deal with. But on the other hand, I've told somebody that um, it sort of has allowed me to just kind of jump into the deep end and start swimming. Like there's no right. easing in, and so my learning curve is very steep. I'm taking in a lot of information, and, um, and so it's kept me very busy, very occupied. Wow. Um, how has it been settling into the department? Tell us a little bit about you know, coming from a different institution yeah. to WashU. Well, this first couple of months, I'm just doing sort of a listening and learning tour. Mm -hmm. And um, it's it's been a lot of fun. It's been eye-opening to just sort of see how people work. And, and, you know, I'm asking people why they do what they do. Why are they here? And what I found has been so um, kind of reassuring that I picked the right place. I mean, there's so many people who care very deeply about their work and who care very deeply about uh, patient care and clinical service and who care so deeply about the students and the residents and the fellows. I mean, somebody the other day, you know, I asked, well, why do you do what you do? Well, I trained here and I wanna make sure that the next generation gets, you know, as good of a training as I did, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, talking to staff, people, you know, I ask, well, why do you work here? Why have you been here so long? Well, I just love my job. What? This is just, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of that, hearing a lot of that. At the same time, I'm hearing how people are just exhausted because of COVID, because of everything that we're dealing with. And so the challenge is how do you keep up that energy of, really um, infusing in people the reasons why they do what they do while we try to you know manage these really complex problems that are associated with this covid crisis yes. so so it's it's an interesting time i'm not bored <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's just there's a lot but um but it, it really is i feel like i've landed in the right place 
We're so happy that you're here. And I think it would be wonderful to hear a little bit of how you did land here, but we came back way up and and would love to hear why you do what you do. I know. (laughs) I ask myself that a lot. Uh, Why am I doing this? So um, I just, I really, I feel like I have been so very fortunate in my life. I work extremely hard. Um, but I, I also feel like I'm at the point in my life and in my career where I have opportunities to, to make a bigger impact, to give back. And, uh, and so there are subtexts to this. One is that um, although I've had a lot of coaches and mentors and, and people along the way who helped me, um, I think that there are better ways to sponsor people. And I would love to be the type of sponsor that I wish I'd had at certain moments in my mm-hmm. career. And so the way I explain it is that, you know, the way I've sponsored myself is if there's an opportunity that comes up, a nomination for something, what I would do is I would sort of scramble and outline a letter of support and then run to somebody and say, you know, I think I'd be a good candidate for this. Would you support me? And they usually say, sure. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, a sponsor is somebody who would say, this is a fabulous opportunity, Dr. Hageman. I would love for you to apply for this. How can we help you, okay? Mm -hmm. Or how can Mm -hmm. we remove some obstacles? Or how can we make this an opportunity for you? What's the way forward? What path can we see you going that leads you to getting this particular uh, nomination Mm -hmm. and really succeeding? And so um, having, you know, sort of sponsored myself, I see some, some pitfalls in that. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, it, it, my career has done very well. I'm not saying that, that's, that, that it's really stopped me in any way, but it's, it's made it a lot harder. And I would like to encourage people to stay in academic medicine. I think we need good people to stay in the field. And what can I do to sort of pave the way for the next generation? So that's pretty much um, kind of the foundation of why I do what I do. The other pieces of it, I I love it. I love patient (laughs) care, I love the research, good data, a paper published, a grant. I mean, I just get really excited about that. And teaching. Almost different types of excitement. It's it's different types of of excitement, and it's really something that, you know, I never imagined that I'd be doing all of these things, but but each of them are really deeply satisfying in their own way. And um, how do we how do we continue that tradition? Um, Great. So yeah, can you back us up a little further? Where um, I know I've I've heard a little bit about yeah. your story. Um, I'm sure others would love to hear. Oh my where gosh! From. Yes. I, I was wondering. Do you, did you get your cowboy boots and are they here? Yeah. So so I did I did talk <laughs> about that. So I'm I'm. Um, I, I'm African, African-American. So my father is South African who grew up in the in Kimberley, which is where the original diamond mines were in mm-hmm. South Africa. My mother is from Austin, Texas, and they met in New York. So I think that that makes me a New Yorker. <laughs> and I lived in New York for almost 20 years. So I have, um, I, I grew up, a, a good portion of my childhood was spent in Lesotho, which is a um, small landlocked country surrounded by South Africa. And it's very mountainous, and and the 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 people of Lesotho are, are horse people and are mountain people, and uh, and I and I rode horses when I was a kid, and then of course Texas, um, 
horses are big and I didn't ride horses in Texas, but I started collecting my cowboy boots in Texas. Okay. And so, and so coming here, I um, I decided my chair's cowboy boots. I got them designed in Houston, and um, it, it's going to have a butterfly on it. Mm -hmm. And so the butterfly means that you know you you end up as this beautiful butterfly, but boy, you started out as a caterpillar, and there was a lot of struggle getting there. And so it's sort of symbolic of that and also symbolic of hope and the future. And so um, because of COVID, um, the factory got shut down. Oh. And so, so I think This was they back started, in January yes, when they were picking them out. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and so now um, they should be here sometime in late September, October. Well, that's a really beautiful yeah. symbolism though. <laughs> So when can you take us back a little bit to caterpillar days, maybe residency? I don't know. Yes. You okay. No, I. You know, I actually will take you back to to college okay. days. Um, I um, in college, I was back and forth between wanting to be a writer versus wanting to be a midwife mm -hmm. versus maybe medical school. I was very active in um, in uh, a lot of student organizations, and there was a lot of political uprising around that time. There was a lot of work being done um, to raise awareness about HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. So ACT UP was one of the, the gay rights organizations that was really, so we come full, full circle to Dr. Anthony Fauci, right? Mm -hmm. Because in those days, they were so angry with the government mm -hmm. for not pushing new treatments and people were dying. And so, um, so that was sort of, you know, just reintroduced me to thoughts of perhaps going to to uh, into healthcare because of my involvement with these organizations and with the Black Women's Health Project and a bunch of organizations in New York. And one of the midwives said, well, you know, I've had to have doctors sign off on what I do. And mm -hmm. I originally wanted to go to medical school and I couldn't. If you go to medical school and become a doctor, you know, why don't you take the midwife mentality with you into medicine? Yeah. So, so that's, uh, so that, that's uh, college. Then in medical school, um, my early rotation before OBGYN was general surgery. Mm -hmm. And three of my residents were women, and two were black women, which was unheard of at Columbia in that day, including the chief resident who went into neurosurgery. Mm. She and I were the same height and sort of same skin color. She had a short afro, and it just occurred to me one day that I could be a surgeon. And that was the first, that was the first time you had thought that. I, I had yeah. not thought of, wow. I had not considered it. So, so for a period of time, I was going to go into surgery, and a lot of my mentors, including um, Dr. Kenneth Ford, who, who recently passed away, is one of the, the, the preeminent surgeons at Columbia. I was going to go into surgery, and then, and then I, my rotation in OBGYN was on gynoc. What Gladic oncology. <laughs> that was it. Wow. Right, so yeah. that combined yeah. surgery mm -hmm. with with my interest in women's health, and so so that was um, that was medical school. I went to uh, Cornell for residency, okay. and part of our rotation was a second year was to rotate at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and so lots of really good mentors and and good experiences and and really good training um, through residency, and then I did my fellowship at. Um, Einstein in the Bronx, mm -hmm. and that first year fellowship was 1998. It was the it was in the middle of the Human Genome Project, and I landed in a lab, Raju Kuchlopati's lab, 
and they were part of the Human Genome Project and doing microarrays and all this stuff. And I didn't know anything about pipettes, and I landed in this lab, and next thing you know, I'm doing northern blots, and this was in the old days, we did northern <laughs> blots. And we actually did RT-PCR and had to like, I mean, it was really rudimentary molecular biology. I got very, very well trained in that lab. And the science bug just bit me. Um, so the notion of microarrays to analyze tumors, the molecular basis of differences that we see under the microscope, when we look at a high-grade serous ovarian cancer under the microscope, it looks pretty similar to the next high-grade serous ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. But we know those patients do differently. We know the patient response to chemotherapy is different, and that's the main question I've been trying to answer ever since. And Why? so look mm -hmm. at the molecular basis of some of these tumors. But I think that we can also pair that with what is going on. So that's the, the sort of um, molecular genetic basis. But then I think as I've evolved in my thinking, your environment is going to influence that. Mm -hmm. So starting to look at uh, more questions that are related to um, social determinants of health and, and all of these things that influence the epigenetics yeah. um, mm -hmm. of, of, of care. So in a broad sense, the broadest sense of epigenetics mm -hmm. that you can think about. And so those types of questions are fascinating to me. I mean, I just have the oddest brain. I start thinking about all these things. And, and, um, and WashU is the type of place where you can bring these concepts together mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and really start probing questions. Yeah. That's great. So you were getting into the laboratory basis yes. and the molecular basis of, of ovarian cancer. Yeah. Um, I mean, it kind of seems like you had these ideas and, and you went to the next step very easily. So you were no. already becoming a butterfly. Oh, no. so tell us oh a little my bit gosh. No, no, no. <laughs> it, oh, I mean, it's a no. great story. Oh. But so, so I got my first too. grant from the Ovarian Cancer Research Fund. So one of my, my long-term mentors, Carolyn Ronowitz, was our mm -hmm. fellowship director at Einstein. And she used to make us write grants and write and just write. And I always thought, well, I, I don't even have enough data. It doesn't matter. She wanted to see. And that was the best advice. So I, I wrote this small grant to the Ovarian Cancer Research Fund, and I got it. And so I was able to sort of leverage that small grant to talk, to negotiate a faculty position okay. in a tiny little lab in a large um, colon cancer uh, lab. Mm -hmm. space. I had a tiny lab and I was able to apply for career development awards that at that time very luckily they allowed me to hold both of them. Okay. If I hadn't been allowed to do that I would not have had a research career and this is so critical especially now when it's so hard to be a physician scientist or do any type of research. If you have a promising uh, scientist, I mean, especially in a department like OBGYN, where mm -hmm. it's so hard to, to grow scientists, any amount of support or resources you could throw at a person, um, we should. Mm -hmm. Because that period of time was so critical. Yeah. It was so important. I didn't have a main ovarian cancer mentor. I was sort of, I pulled together um, kind of a panel of mentors from different places, because I was in a colon cancer lab, remember? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mm -hmm. just, they didn't know anything about ovarian cancer. Yeah. And so 
this is an example of how you can mentor yourself and sponsor yourself. And so I spent a lot of time sort of scrambling and pulling together these pieces mm -hmm. to start my lab. And, um, and so I was at Einstein for three years and those years I pretty much was immersed in the lab. So I count those as my postdoc years. So although I had a faculty appointment, I pretty much was in the lab. Now, I did cover Jacoby Medical Center's um, Gynoc program. So every other Friday, I'd see patients, and every other Friday I'd operate. Mm -hmm. So so that's how I sort of kept up my clinical work, but I delayed my boards. Okay. And I, so so I thinking delayed, about that was your no, case list. No, I did. I yeah. had to delay my boards. Mm -hmm. I delayed my boards, and, and that was, um, it, it was important to do that. Um, not everybody feels comfortable doing that, and it is risky, but I did. And then, so I was chugging along, and then um, I, uh, I had this opportunity to introduce um, a speaker at one of our seminars. It was called Autumn in New York. It was hosted by the chair of our department at Einstein. And her name was Valerie Montgomery Rice. And she was a reproductive endocrinologist who studied ovarian cancer in mice. And I was like, <laughs> I had never met another black woman who had done lab work in ovarian cancer, ever. Yeah. So I introduced her, and I was just super overly enthusiastic. I was like fangirling all day. I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And we sat down for lunch, and she says, well, actually, I'm, I'm moving from University of Kansas to Meharry Medical College to become the chair. Why don't you come down and give grand rounds? Sure. Yes. Little did I know that she was recruiting me. Ah. <laughs> so, so when somebody asks you to give grand rounds, always have in the back of your mind that that could be a next step. Or a next something. step. <laughs> I had no clue. So I went down to Nashville. I gave my grand rounds. I'm like just oblivious. People take me to lunch. Well, why do you want to move to Nashville? Oh. <laughs> what? <laughs> It was really pretty, pretty green. <laughs> but that actually was a very good move. It was very mission driven. What she did is she recruited a bunch of subspecialists and, and, and she had a core group of people there to rebuild their um, OBGYN residency. Mm. And, um, and she did it in record time got all of us recruited in. You don't say no to Dr. Montgomery Rice, who is now the president of Morehouse School of Medicine. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, and uh, just amazing person in our field. And uh, we rebuilt that residency program. We got our four residents you know, from internships. So I stayed from when they were interns to chiefs and got them graduated. They all passed their boards. And it was a really important time um, I was the only Juan oncologist at Meharry, and I still had a lab. Wow. So I was sort of burning, burning the candle at both ends, and an opportunity came up at Vanderbilt, and I really had to decide at that point, um, was I gonna continue the mission at Meharry, and pretty much at some point I would have to give up my lab, mm -hmm. or was I gonna continue to try to make it as a physician scientist? And this opportunity at Vanderbilt um, allowed me to continue my research mm -hmm. and so there's a thread of everywhere I go um, am I able to continue my research yeah 
And really asking yourself that question, what is really important? Why am I doing what I'm doing every day, probably? So I maintained my faculty appointment uh, as a secondary adjunct at Meharry that I I still sort of carry with me. That reminds me I need to put in my paperwork um, uh, with this move. But um, I, I had medical students from Meharry rotate through my lab at Vanderbilt, and a, a story that's relevant to WashU is the other day, I get this email, Dr. Cavelli, are you here? <laughs> yes. So one of our OB anesthesiologists, critical care people, is here. I don't want to say her name just because, just in case she doesn't want me to talk about her in that specific way, but she's here, and she was in my lab that's at Vanderbilt. Wow. So this is 10 plus years later. And um, so that made my week last week because, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I'm saying. That's where, that's how you sort of, um, you know, make an impact in, in somebody that they reach out to you and say, I remember when you told me such and such. And, and, and look, you know, I was so happy to see where she's landed and what she's doing. She's on faculty here and she's doing great. And those stories, you never know when that, those moments are actually <laughs> going to impact someone else, right? I know, I know, so I have to behave. <laughs> I know, like, we've got to behave, right? Uh, um, so, Vanderbilt, you were there for yes, several so, years. Yeah, I was there for almost nine years, okay, so and okay. I built a translational ovarian cancer research program, and, um, you know, really, uh, that, was, that was pulling pieces together again. It was the first a little ovarian cancer lab the department had had in decades, if ever, that I could, I could figure out. And um, and there were periods of time where we were um, down a GYN oncologist, and so I'd have to do a lot more clinical work. And there were periods of time where I, I could go back to the lab. And, and um, you know, throughout all of these experiences, other than an Einstein, you know, I never had a fellow. Mm-hmm. And so you can see the differences in people's productivity as a faculty member, whether you have fellows or just not. Yeah. So these are things that make a big difference when you're thinking about where you want to land. Um, and, and clearly it wasn't impossible, but it was harder. Yeah. It was harder. It was a really great place as far as research and resources. And again, um, writing is critical. And that's where um, they had a lot of resources for people who were K awardees. So I was able to, after these uh, foundation career awards, I was able to apply for a K grant, K grant through NCI. And um, and that again, because they allowed me to do this, that bought me some time and mm-hmm. that allowed mm-hmm. me to build the lab and build data. But it took a long, long time to get my first R, and I actually didn't get my first R grant until I was leaving Vanderbilt oh, for wow. KU. Okay. So it's years, 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 years. Um, I got recruited to KU to um, to start an ovarian cancer lab, um, to start a Gynonc fellowship, and to um, you know uh, drive the the uh, the Gynonc division in a, in a broader direction, like mm-hmm. build out some of their clinical services. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like that job description, you know, was that I'd written it for myself sort of thing. And it was a fabulous opportunity. It really was. And I was there for about three years and was not planning to leave mm-hmm. or look or move anywhere. 
and um, I got an email from a recruiter about WashU. And I, I knew a lot of people here, and I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> and so I called, I called, we arranged to speak, and I said, well, I, aren't you guys looking for an MFM? And he's right. like, well, I mean, this is WashU, so, right? Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and he said, well, yeah, you know, we're, we're just throwing a, a, a wide net and, you know, why don't you just put in your CV? So I had no, no thought that this would be a real thing, mm-hmm. but I just said, well, sure. But I got to tell you that first interview, um, I think it was just, you know, maybe halfway through it. I'm not sure because I think even to this day, a lot of us still have imposter syndrome. Uh, but about halfway through, I started sitting up a little bit and going, actually, this, is, this could be a real possibility. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity to make an impact in St. Louis at WashU with this department and the patient population that we serve that so needs us to, to, to build this in a, in a direction that will really impact the care in the region and your vision is something that we are all benefiting from already. Um, it was wonderful how you came in, and, and it was such a tumultuous time when you yeah. started, too. Yeah, it still is. I mean, it's not uh, over. We're not quite out of it. <laughs> good point, good point, fair point. <laughs> we're learning I just want to make it go away. Right. Just COVID, just go away. But you know that is magical thinking, and I'm not saying that. It's not a thing that's going to go away. No, wow. we have to. We have to go through it to get through it. I mean, I just think about that. But I think that my job right now, I feel like, is to reframe mm-hmm. our narratives. Okay. We need to do a lot of reframing, okay? I think that um, in medicine and science, you know, which, like I've told you, I love what I do. And it's so difficult for me to understand why we don't communicate to the lay public yeah. in a way that resonates, that says, and I, I struggle this, I struggle with this even with my own family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, explaining, I mean, we don't know all the mysteries of immunology, okay? That's why we do research. But we can communicate the information that we have today. And we can also say we're doing the best we can and this is what we have available today. Tomorrow, we may discover something different and we may have to change course. (laughs) That is such a difficult concept to get across. And what happens is people end up losing faith and end up not trusting what you're saying. (laughs) And we have to regain the public trust. And there are many, many failings, many problems we've had in medicine and science that we have to overcome and we have to earn forgiveness for and regain trust. But at the same time, we have all these people who are dedicating their lives to, to patient care, to students, to trainees, to research, to make people's lives better. And there's this huge gap and disconnect between what we're actually doing and showing and, and in our labs or in the hospital and what people feel. Yeah. And what people actually see, mm-hmm. and um, and that is a huge challenge that I think that we really need to tackle because we're, you know, if you we're we're losing this game, right, right, right now, 
we're being out Twittered, <laughs> we're being out Instagrammed, we're being, you know, people are have louder voices um, that are not really, you know, and back to Dr. Anthony Fauci, I mean, it's really interesting that, you know, he is, he's being vilified and he's just trying to be the solid scientist. And what he's saying makes sense, but how he's communicating it in a way that people are actually trusting you know, we don't have enough forces behind him to support him and, 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 and lift him up. Mm -hmm. The voices that are pushing him down are so much louder. So that seed of doubt is planted and we lose the public trust. So this is a very, very interesting time in medicine and science yeah. for us to regain and reframe these narratives. For the public and also for our trainees, yeah. right? Because I think sometimes, well, have you ever had experiences where you were feeling a loss of trust in the medical system as you moved along the ways? Or oh, I mean, as a patient, I mean, this is part of what what um, I'm I'm struggling with writing about right now is that you know, uh, as a black woman in medicine and science, um, I've benefited from a lot of things, but there's been a lot of harm inflicted as well mm -hmm. along the way, personally and professionally. So if you think about the big uproar around Serena Williams delivering her baby mm -hmm. several years ago, um, you know, uh, you know, I delivered my baby in New York, and I'm just grateful that my OBGYN was a black woman who noticed where I was not able to advocate for, and I was a doctor. An OBGYN. An OBGYN. <laughs> Yeah. And I I felt so vulnerable. I could not advocate. I was in too much pain and too too much suffering to truly advocate for myself and my husband was trying to advocate for me, but it took her to come in and sort of you know, so it was the interaction with the nurses, it was the interaction with some of the trainees. It was just, you know, I, I think people didn't know that I was a doctor. Mm -hmm. That shouldn't have made a difference. Absolutely. Right. And so again, it's the disconnect bit between how hard we work and how we feel like we're caring and how we're actually manifesting that and how the patient experiences it. Mm -hmm. And so this is the work and it's more of a culture shift that we really need to start looking at um, because we're, we'll lose patients, we'll lose trust, we'll lose trainees. Um, uh, I remember it was the last last day of postpartum rounds at New York Hospital, I was just thrilled because it was one of, it was such a hard experience because I'd go in to examine women and they'd say, oh, my tray's not ready to be picked up. Mm -hmm. and I'd say, no, I'm not from food service. I'm here to examine you. Or I'd go in to try to examine somebody who had a fever, postpartum fever. I don't know, you know, so I have my badge on and it's like as bright as it can be that I'm a doctor, you know. Uh, we had to live in uh, New York hospital housing for good reason because our rent was subsidized. It was very expensive living in New York. And I remember I was in the basement doing my laundry and I had scrubs on. And this woman comes up and she's like, oh, this doctor you work for, it's too much laundry. <laughs> Doctor, that doctor, you need to complain to the doctor. That's too much laundry they're having you do. What did you say? And so I didn't say anything. And I, went, I just went upstairs. I was post call. I was just like ignoring her. Mm -hmm. 
and I came back down to put the laundry in the dryer. She says, you work for the doctor, are you the doctor? Mic drop. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes, I did have too much laundry because I was post call. Right. And had right. Laundry a lot. <laughs> but those those constant but things along the it's way. It's constant. It's yeah. constant. But you know, you keep your eye on a on a bigger on a bigger price. My grandmother yeah. is um a hundred. Wow. Um, she is um in Austin, Texas, and she um you know part of her. It's so funny. My my son talks about this. He's like, you can never complain to Gigi about anything because she'll tell you about when she was a sharecropper picking cotton. And it's like, yeah. So I mean, there there are things that have moved, um, but I feel like I owe it to somebody like her and to to keep my eye on a bigger goal. Um, yes, these are these are micro and macro aggressions that we need to deal with. Um, but um, if I turn around and quit, what does that say to the next generation? Yeah. There's only 2% uh, African-American black oncologists in this country, 2%. What does it say to the patients? You know, so I'm very persistent, and um, and I feel like um, you know we just we just keep pushing. And you know, in hindsight, I can sort of laugh about these stories, but they do hurt. They yeah. do sting, and uh, you have to find ways to have good support systems and other places to kind of process. And then we have to be upstanders. So, so. You know, when that sort of thing happens, um, you know, I've had students um, say, well, well, somebody says they don't want a student in the room. I said, well, I understand that, and I think it's really important that people have the option, but I've got to tell people that, that, that the student is part of my team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so there are th the the things that we, that we can say as, as the people in positions of power mm -hmm. in these circumstances to set the tone and to set the stage and to be upstanders. Um, I would say that the, the people I'm most disappointed in are the people in the middle. So you have your tormentors, okay? And sometimes those tormentors are the motivators for me because it's like really, you don't think I can do this? Right. Okay. Then Push we have the, the mentors, and then it drives you right. further. Yeah, and then you have the mentors. But the people who are most disappointing to me is a big group in the middle on that bell-shaped curve who are the bystanders who just watch and don't say anything. Mm -hmm. And I understand it. There's fear. There's fear of retaliation and reprisal and fear of embarrassment and looking stupid, fear of their jobs. Um, but I think that um, we, have to, we have to dilute that fear because otherwise things will not change and we'll just, you know, the same, the same things people told me when I first got to, to college, they, they, they tell my son who gets there, you know, it's like, yeah. well, the only reason you're here is because of affirmative action. Okay. Well, I don't recall somebody grading my, any of my exams differently. Mm -hmm. 
so, um, you know, and, and so how do I counsel him? I mean, it's like the same things over and over again. We have to, we have to call it out and we have to kind of push back against it when we can, mm -hmm. in, in ways that we can. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get to work, right? Hashtag let's get absolutely, to work. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Whenever you think there's not enough to do, you can just yeah. look a different way. And, and there is, and it's always, there's always a good time to do something right. Mm -hmm. There's always a good time to do something good for somebody. I mean, it, it may not be, you maybe didn't do it yesterday, but maybe you could do it tomorrow, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, there's... Yeah, and, and that can be so tiring, right? To, yeah. And, and so any words it's, of advice? It's to, more tiring not doing it. Okay. Yeah, that's a, I think that's even the best it's, advice. It's more tiring not doing it because it festers. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, the sort of behavior that is a bystander to um, workplace harassment or discrimination or whatever it is, let's call it a big name like that, that same behavior impacts patient care. And as people are becoming more outspoken and more aware, they're not gonna choose to participate in that behavior. And you wanna be known as the place where you're not gonna tolerate that type of behavior. Yeah. Um, we know this in medicine. We know that bad behavior costs Costs. It actually costs money. <laughs> if that's what you care about, mm -hmm. and if that's the bottom line, it costs you. But it also costs um, a loss of morale. It, it costs you in trust. And uh, you cannot grow. If you're in a, an environment of constant fear and fear of reprisal, fear of embarrassment, you're not going to be innovative. You're not going to grow. You're not going to think. You're not going to uh, be empowered to do a fabulous job. You're going to do a good job. You'll show up. But, you know, who do we want to be? We want to be exceptional. We don't want to just show up and, you know, catch a paycheck. Right. Go right? Go do that somewhere else, maybe. This is not, this is not who, who are we. Right. You know? Yeah. And I know that that's, you know, that, the, the sense of WashU is it's big. We do big things. We make big impact. And that's that's why I'm here. Yeah? It's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Sharing about, about you. And we're so, I think I'm speaking for everyone that it just seems like you've brought that spark of enthusiasm that we all kind of needed under us to get to work. Well, no, you you have it. We have it. We just have to. I mean, there's and there's like I told you, I walked around and people have it. I think what happens is it's in pockets, and mm -hmm. we need to just push it, pull it all together, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, because it is here. Um, and the work, I mean, the amount of amazing work that's being done here is just it's it's just good to see. It's good to see. Well. Again, a big heartfelt welcome Thank to you. St. Louis, to WashU, to the Department yeah. of OBGYN. Thank you for leading us, and um, we'll sign off till the next time. Thank you for having me.
you know what I would oh, do I is know. I would press the thing and talk the whole time and it wouldn't record. <laughs> that would be something I would do. <laughs> it seemed to work. So. Yeah? Oh, good. Well, that was fun. I hope I, I got through some stuff. Yeah.